One of the great paradoxes to me in, in practice and uh, just in living life on this earth is that in opening, we open not only to great beauty, but also to great suffering. And that somehow there's this incredibly sublime part of experience and a real unbearable part of experience, and that we often experience both of them, and often together, almost at the same time. And I thought of giving a whole talk that was just examples of this, because as I thought of it, I could just come up with one after the other, but I'll give just two. Um, One just today, two different people in interviews told me about this little nest of baby birds. So James and I went out and saw it in one of those really vicious-looking choya bushes. And buried deep down inside this really forbidding plant is a tiny little nest with four tiny, tiny little baby birds. So vulnerable and so tender. You know, the miracle of birth, the real beauty of that in the harshness, the forbidding climate of this desert and knowing that what are the chances that they'll survive, you know, maybe 50-50. Another example, again, from the desert, back to those baby bunnies where when they first came out, again, just barely alive and not really knowing, is this the life that's coming out of birth really going to be new life? Or are they barely alive because they're on the point of going back into death? And really, it was such a unique space to be in, kind of witnessing this very tender borderline between birth and death and the beauty and the pain of that And knowing that that's something that happens all the time, everywhere in life. And it turned out to be death because the mother wasn't around for whatever reason, because the climate's too harsh, because the world is the way it is. Nature has this incredible beauty and this incredible harshness, the sublimely beautiful and the exquisitely painful. And... Our life encompasses both, and what our practice is about is opening very deeply to both. Because the suffering aspect, the difficult, painful aspect of life is so unbearable, and we have been so conditioned unconsciously to avoid this, to move away from this, because it's so hard to open to, That's the reason it's the first noble truth that the Buddha felt it necessary to proclaim, yes, life is unsatisfactory. And for that reason, it can seem a great deal of emphasis in our practice is on seeing, accepting, really being fully present for that which is difficult, that which is painful. And there's no question but that everyone here has had ample opportunity to do that, even just today probably even just in the extension of the schedule today. It might have brought up a lot more physical pain than you had before, maybe more emotional difficulty. Maybe things got so quiet that that was really scary. There's endless variations. And it is necessary for us in our practice, as in our life, to really get in contact 
with the painful when it's what is happening in the moment. It's necessary because freedom from the suffering, not freedom from painful experience, but freedom from suffering comes about through our directly facing, through our seeing it and understanding it for what it is. But at times, it seems in practice, as also in life, we can get so focused on seeing these difficulties, on working with opening to the difficulties, really becoming aware of the manifestations of greed, of aversion or anger, of confusion, delusion, identification in the mind. We start to see them and we can become so aware of them that it can, it can be really depressing, almost overwhelming, discouraging. We can lose sight of what we're doing here, lose sight of our inspiration and just seeing the seemingly endless array of painful, difficult experience. So what I want to talk about tonight is the importance, yes, of seeing the difficult experience, but the importance of balancing it with appreciation of the pleasant, of the beautiful, of the sublime, when that's what happens to be present in the moment. To be able to open to appreciation as well as open to suffering and to see ways that we can sometimes get lost in the suffering, that it can distort, our relationship to it can distort our perception of what's actually going on, even in the practice, even with our full best intentions to be present for just what is. I think it's important to remember, it's something I reflect on, remind myself of from time to time, that these qualities of greed, of hatred, of confusion, of delusion, they are not our intrinsic nature. It's not the true inseparable nature of our mind and heart to be filled with greed and hatred and delusion. It's not an uh, un- inseparable part of our experience. The, the pure nature of our mind is clear and radiant. And often we lose sight of that. It's like these, these difficulties, these discouragements of the heart, these distortions of seeing are like clouds that come and cover the sun of the purity of our mind and heart. And we get so involved in seeing the clouds, we become identified with the clouds, and we think that's all there is. And in our experience, sometimes that's all we're aware of, that's all we see. And so it's important not to lose track of the pure, shining nature of the sun. Our practice is about opening to both the sublimely difficult and the sublimely beautiful and everything in between. Just want to mention some aspects of this pure nature of mind simply so that we can recognize them when they're present, which sounds simple, but it's something we often forget to do. In the Buddhist terminology, these aspects of mind are classified as non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. It sounds kind of 
you know, negative, kind of passive. But really, they're much more active, experiential qualities of mind, very positive. So, for example, non-greed encompasses the qualities of, of generosity, of outflowing energy of the heart, qualities of sharing, of sacrifice, even of renunciation, of non-attachment. Non-hatred, again, is the active qualities of metta, of non-discriminating loving-kindness, the active qualities of compassion, of forgiveness, of patience, of acceptance. All of that's non-hatred. It doesn't just mean we stop hating and go numb. (coughs) And non-delusion is... When confusion is not present in the mind, there's a real brightness, a real clarity of mind, a clarity of perception. And this leads to insight, to real equanimity with our experience, to real evenness with our experience, to understanding. Now, all of these different aspects, at various times, we experience all of them. They're not highly esoteric, unobtainable qualities of mind. They're accessible to all of us. And at various moments, when confusion or hatred or greed isn't present in the mind, we can experience and do experience these qualities. It's really important to recognize them when they're present. That's all. Not trying to make them happen and not looking for something, but just recognizing when, oh, clarity is present right now. Patience is present right now. Really important. Sometimes even talking about these possibilities of clarity, of metta, of compassion, these possibilities of existing in these states, even that can sound discouraging to people. Because they think, well, yeah, that sounds really nice to have a mind of boundless metta, but I know what my mind looks like, and it's filled with boundless greed and selfishness. It's forget it. You know, it's way out of my league. And it's so easy to get into comparing, well, I could never, now that person who is moving so slowly and mindfully, I bet they really have a lot of clarity, and I can just hang it up right now. It can get really discouraging. It's important to remember when we're seeing a lot of clinging or you're seeing a lot of anger or whatever it is that you think you're seeing in your mind and you can't imagine the mind ever changing, ever being in a different state, that the mind can't know. The mind, the thoughts at that moment can only know what's already been experienced. It can't know what it hasn't experienced. And so those kind of thoughts are totally unreliable. And there's nothing to base, there's just nothing to base anything on. The heart can trust that it is possible and that we do have access to these qualities of mind. I want to just share an experience that has helped me in working in this way because for me too, hearing about the possibility of freedom, of enlightenment, of living with a heart and mind really free from delusion and confusion seem just too far away. 
And sometimes it was inspiring, but often a real sense of, you know, that's just so far from where I am. And last year, yeah, last year, uh, I went with some friends to Bodh Gaya, which is a small village in India where uh, the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree on the night of his complete enlightenment. I hadn't been there for about, I hadn't been there for about 18 years. And there's a, a shrine there, a tall stupa inside a little park, and a descendant, supposedly, of the original Bodhi tree with a little, you know, fence around it. And we went and sat under the tree. And I'm, I'm not usually a person who is very moved by shrines, but somehow the place moved me to tears. And as I sat there, I just, what, what it was is I, I felt the reality of the Buddha as a human being and of what he, the understanding that he had come to. It moved out of the realm of myth for me, of some distant, unachievable thing to, oh, this is real. This was a real human being who sat under this tree and came to very deep understanding and freedom. And so it is a real path and a real possibility, and I'm also a human being. It just demythologized it and made it seem possible. And rather than feeling discouraged, I felt a great deal of energy and inspiration, not to get somewhere, actually, but just to stay on the path and really put my energy into investigating, into practice. It was, it was very energizing and inspiring. And being at this temple also served as a metaphor for me in another way, because the thought that then often comes after thinking, well, okay, so the Buddha was a human being, he could do it fine, he was an ascetic, he spent his life as a monk, and monks and nuns can go off and really come to understanding, but what about me in the middle of the marketplace with a family and a job, and I'm so busy? As I say, being in Bodh Gaya was a metaphor, but this shrine in the middle of this little dirty, noisy Indian village is not some sublimely peaceful place. Again, it's, it's the sublime and the ridiculous and the excruciatingly painful all at once because the power and inspiration of this place was beautiful. It, it touched me very deeply. It was also somewhat ridiculous. There were hordes of tourists coming, different nationalities, through and shouting on loudspeakers and coming up and staring at you and just chattering and chattering and touring around the stupa. And there was a group of Tibetan monks. This wasn't ridiculous. It was just noisy, sitting on the side of the hill for three days, chanting and blowing their their long pipes. Actually, that was quite inspiring, but really noisy. (laughs) There was uh, a crazy Tibetan woman who would run around just ranting and raving at anyone who was sitting there. And all the noise of the village and all the people in the village who weren't the least bit interested except to try and earn some money off of all the visitors who were coming. There were, um, again, the, the sublime and the painful and the ridiculous. There, as you walk in, some young men would run up with plastic bags full of little fish that they try and sell to you. And I found out later that what it is is there's a lotus pond in the back. And because the Tibetans have so much reverence for life, the, these young Hindu men will go and catch these fish And then they'll go and sell them, and the Tibetans will buy them back and put them back into the lotus pond. (laughs) 
they don't want them to die. It's so sweet, and it's so human. And it's just the poor fish. I mean, they just go back and forth. That's their life. So, so this place has become a metaphor in my mind for all aspects of life, and that the practice and that coming to understanding is not necessarily about removing oneself, separating oneself from all the aspects of life. Even the Buddha, after his enlightenment, spent 45 years until he died extremely engaged teaching anyone who wanted to be taught. Very busy. And so far from withdrawing, it's, this metaphor enables me to come back and be in life more fully engaged because one knows that it's impermanent. One comes back with more wisdom, more understanding, can see the whole play of impermanence and that there's nothing solid. But that's no reason to withdraw. In fact, one can engage even more fully. You're not so fooled to take some aspect of the show as this is the one that's going to make me really happy for the rest of my life. You just know that isn't true. But in this moment, this aspect is beautiful and worth my full and total effort and energy. So in that way, I, going to Bodhgaya helped me not to feel that the sense of talking about the possibility of freedom, talking about these clear, clarifying qualities of mind, rather than having that be a far distant goal and something that's discouraging, it's actually accessible in this moment. And that's all there is this moment. Something I've noticed in in myself and in talking to people, another thing that sometimes happens in speaking of these powerful, uplifting qualities of mind, after doing practice for some time, it's almost as if um, we sometimes discover we're almost more afraid to open to qualities of, of deep metta or compassion, appreciation, a deep love of the Dharma, Sometimes it's almost as if we'll be experiencing that and it's harder to fully open to and trust these experiences sometimes than it is to open to pain. And just a few things I've noticed of why that could be. In myself, sometimes it's sometimes almost not trusting that that experience is real. You know, this couldn't really be compassion. It must be some kind of, it's masquerading as compassion. I can't really trust it. I can't really trust that this is um, joy, that this is real rapture, love of the Dharma. I'm just kidding myself. And so there's a subtle, subtle pulling away. So watch the tendency to discount the validity of, say, clarity of mind when it's present, thinking it's some incredible esoteric state. This couldn't be it. We always think it's going to be something more extreme than it actually is. Another and maybe even stronger uh, thing I experience in the kind of holding back from opening to these things is that there's such, there can be such a deep poignancy to it. Poignancy that in really opening, there's that part of the mind that says, yeah, but I'm going to get attached and it's going to go away and then I'm really going to suffer. So I'll just hold back 
altogether, you know. And that's, it's the poignancy of life. It's the poignancy of those little birds, incredibly beautiful. But when, well, should I never go see them? Because I know they're just going to die there in that choya bush. And so what's the point? Forget it. You know, it's kind of doing the same thing to ourselves. I'll just stay with the knee pain. What's the point of acknowledging this joy? It's just going to go away and I'm back with the knee pain. So we'll hang out with the knee pain. Just watch that. You know, it's, can we learn to trust in the experience in the moment, in our ability to be with that experience? Yeah, grasping might come in, and it definitely will go away. And if grasping's there, you might suffer. But can we trust enough to open and experiment and explore? You know, allow oneself, notice the holding back, allow oneself to experience these, these uplifting qualities of the mind and heart. Consciously acknowledge their presence. If attachment starts to come in, if grasping comes in, okay, so notice that. The experience has now changed, as you knew it was going to, from rapture to attachment. That's fine. Be mindful of that. And if you don't notice the attachment, at some point you'll notice the quality of the experience has changed significantly. Okay, it's gone. Be with what's happening now. But we don't have to be afraid of fully opening to these experiences. What, what we can find, actually, in the doing of this, in the fully opening and seeing it pass, is you find that I actually have learned to open and appreciate much more fully something because I know that it will pass. Because I know that it will pass, and if there isn't that clinging, that fear, then all the energy, all the attention is just there very fully with the experience, just as it is. Nothing extra, nothing else to want, nowhere else to go with it, and okay when it goes away. It allows the appreciation to be experienced in a much deeper way. It's very sweet. Okay, so now moving from talking about the sublime back to the painful. It's always shifting back and forth. So how is it that even when we've had experiences of these strong, positive qualities of mind, or deep understandings, say, of impermanence, or knowing that we really do know how we want to live, that there is another way to live, that we can have real moments where we know we're not separated from each other or from the earth. Or we really understand the pain that comes from clinging and grasping. We really know that. It's not just intellectual. So how come then we continue to be caught in confusion? We'll see clinging really clearly, get up, walk out, and get lost in a frenzy of wanting a certain thing for lunch. How can that happen, you know? And this can also be very discouraging. We walk out, the clouds come back again, and we immediately think that's all there is. The sun is long forgotten. Partly, we tend to think sometimes that because we've seen something a couple of times, we ought to be able to just drop it and then to feel very defeated when it's not quite that easy. 
I want to talk a little bit about the power of our conditioning because it's enormously strong. And I think we need to understand that in order to respect it, not to feel discouraged or defeated, but rather more just to understand the nature of what we're working with and not to feel that we're doing something wrong or there's something wrong with us because we keep falling back into old patterns, even when we think we've understood them and are ready, more than ready, to move out of them. The conditioning I'm talking about here It's really the tendency to avoid, deny what is difficult. In other words, that's aversion or hatred. The tendency to cling to, grasp after, get attached to what is pleasant. And that's what we talk about when we call it greed. Or the tendency to space out, be bored when something neutral is happening. Or to get identified. And that's what we call when we talk about delusion or confusion. These conditioning, these tendencies are so deep that a great deal of the time they're not even conscious. Now, we're not sitting here and consciously thinking, oh, that's nice, maybe I'll get attached. It's very deep and unconscious. That's why the Buddha has said that one of his main impetuses to teach when he first came out of his deep enlightenment, he looked around and at first he said, ah, you know, I'm not really so inclined to teach. These people are too far gone. It would be too troublesome for me. And uh, various people came down and begged him to. But one of, the, one of the things that really arose compassion in his heart was in, with his eyes of wisdom, he could see all around the world. And he saw that there are so many, everybody, not so many people, everybody wants to be happy in this world. And we're so confused that we're doing just the things that will bring us more unhappiness in our efforts to be happy. And this is because of the power of the conditioning of these tendencies. I read a book a couple of years ago called Vital Lies, Simple Truths, or The Psychology of Self-Deception by Daniel Goleman, a psychologist and also a Vipassana meditator. And in it, he gives uh, reports some scientific experiments that I found fascinating because they show the depth of this unconscious conditioning in our minds. So the psychology of self-deception is about ways that our mind can block the conscious knowing of certain stimuli in our environment not only the conscious knowing of the stimuli, but even the conscious perceiving of certain stimuli that might be anxiety-provoking. Or also, if we have a kind of reset to see a certain thing, a kind of tunnel vision, that somewhere in the recesses of the mind, stimuli are blocked out. We don't even perceive them consciously. So I'll give explain some experiments that he used to show those. This is both a physical process and a mental process. And he began with talking about just on the physical level, how in in situations of extraordinary danger and stress, the the receptors that, that feel physical pain can somehow just stop working and that physical pain actually goes unperceived consciously. And the example he gave was of a man who was being uh, mauled by a lion and was conscious during it and survived it. 
And in describing it, was describing it quite fully and saying he just wasn't feeling pain at that time. Though, of course, obviously his body was being ripped apart. It seemed to be some kind of survival mechanism because he was able to stay conscious enough to somehow get away. So this same process of selectively deciding on an unconscious level what we're going to perceive in our environment and what we're not going to perceive operates often now in a way that's supposedly to protect us from anxiety or to help us move in a desired direction, tunnel vision. So two experiments. One, a group of subjects was told to watch a short video of a very fast basketball game, and they had to count how many times the ball was passed. So they had a very specific task, really focused on it. Now, at some point during these few minutes, uh, a woman in white, with like a white parasol, went strolling through the basketball court in one side of the film and out the other, very nonchalantly. What's so interesting is nobody commented on it. At the end, they just said how many times the ball was passed. And when they were asked about it, they all said, what do you mean? What are you talking about? That never happened. When they went back and were shown the video, of course, they were astounded. How could they have possibly not seen that? It's so incongruous, so obvious. So that's tunnel vision. What we're set, what our expectations are can really determine what our reality is in that moment. The other way with aversion, with things that provoke anxiety, they had some series of tests where people looked at um, a series of different drawings and then later had to remember what was in the drawing and describe it. That was one part, but they also had some fancy machine that could register for each person where their eyeball looked in the picture so that the pictures would be, say, one part that was just normal, a guy reading a newspaper, and another part that was real incongruous with that and, say, sexually suggestive. And they, if the person later only described the man reading the newspaper, they could also know from, so he didn't remember that consciously, the sexually suggestive part. Somehow that was an anxiety-provoking thing for him. But they could also register that his eyeball had never even looked at the half of the picture that was sexually suggestive. I thought, now that's really weird. Not only did he not consciously take in the stimuli, but somehow they got some previous information so the eyeball knew not to even look there. It's really interesting to me. So sometimes this has in our life served us in a functional way, as in blocking out pain so we can function or as a child blocking out memories of abuse because you couldn't keep living with the same people if you had to, if you remembered that. But a lot of the time, it's not serving a life-supporting function, and we're actually prisoners of this unconscious tendency of mind, of these habits of mind. Prisoners because... What we are perceiving in a certain moment as reality, what we're taking to be what is, our experience, is often actually inaccurate because it's seen through these distortions of mind, these distortions of wanting, the distortions of pulling away, of resisting, of denying, the distortions of confusion. So we have these big blind spots sometimes 
in our understanding of our experience. Selective memory, selective perception. It's unconscious selecting of what not to notice. So this fascinated me, this book, because it's just in a very uh, data-oriented way, showing how much our experience of what's going on can be skewed by these deep-rooted tendencies of mind. The tendency to avoid, to deny, to block any stimuli that's threatening. We can even deny the actual sight of something that we're looking at, actually deny that that's what's happening. Once I was in the hospital, and I'd been there a few days, and the doctor came in and was doing a somewhat painful procedure, and I was, I was over the edge, and it was really hurting, and I was kind of crying, and he looks at me and goes, what's the matter with you? This doesn't hurt. Just flat denial, you know, and we do that a lot. The, the filter of denial, of aversion, the filter of greed, of tunnel vision, seeing just what our mind is set on and everything else is in the way. So, you know, when you're walking down the street and you're hungry, suddenly all you see is restaurants. Whereas before, maybe you never noticed the restaurants. Or here, when you're walking in the desert, and it's really beautiful, but suddenly the bell rings, and you're really hungry, and you want to get to lunch. And what was really filled with appreciation is now just ground to get over till you get somewhere else. And the people who were my brothers and sisters are now in the way. (laughs) Tunnel vision, you know, it skews our perception. The third, the factor of identification, that is taking any facet out of our experience, taking it as being permanent, and really identifying with it, making it solid. For example, the thought goes by, I'm really stupid. We take that thought out, really identify it, give it power, and then take in, perceive only what corroborates that experience, that I am stupid. Anything else that, that I'm not stupid, or I did something really bright then, just kind of doesn't make it in through the perceptors. But anything that corroborates I am stupid, yeah, right, that's true, I'm really stupid. Identification. All of this filtered, skewed perception is delusion. It's how we stay out of touch with reality. It's why we don't know what's going on sometimes. It's why we can feel so confused. As long as these filters are operating and we don't know it, as long as they're operating and we can't see them, can't know that they're there, we'll continue to live in confusion. We'll continue to suffer. So that's why it is that we can so easily fall back into the same old patterns. Not that we're doomed to be stuck in it forever, but that the habits of viewing life through these filters are so strong. They've been conditioned so deeply, they're even unconscious, that when we're unaware, when we space out for a while, that's what springs back up again. It's a simple example. We can know very deeply, for example, that I'm not separated from the environment, that my actions impact on the environment, that I'm part of the earth, 
and that I really want to act in that way. I know it deeply. And in a moment, and so, for example, thinking, okay, there's a water crisis. We won't take long, hot showers. That's just really inappropriate and disconnected. And that can be true, and we know it. In a moment of inattention, when we're unaware, all of the old habits will spring back up. And we can find any reason. It skews our vision. So suddenly, what was a long shower? That's not so long. That's not hurting anybody. It doesn't matter what I do. That's not going to affect anybody else. Or we just space it out completely. And after 20 minutes, go, oh, yeah, right. I wasn't going to take long, hot showers anymore. It's not bad. It's just how these tendencies spring up when the mindfulness isn't present and skew our perception of things. This is where mindfulness is so powerful in working with these filters because it's the tool that counteracts the unconscious self-deception. By shining the light of mindfulness on whatever arises in our experience, and that's just what we're doing here, whatever arises, not discriminating, not just going to the pleasant or just going to the unpleasant, not choosing, but shining the light of mindfulness on whatever presents itself in a strong way in our experience, we're developing the ability to be with our experience, whatever it is, just as it is. And because we're not trying to change it, we're not trying to avoid it, we're not trying to turn it into something different, because we're allowing it, we begin to see in our experience how these filters themselves are working. We begin to not only see the world through, say, a veil of confusion or anger, we start to actually be able to see the anger or the confusion or the greed itself. When we're seeing these filters, not fighting or denying them, but seeing them, they're no longer so much coloring our world. We're not so much looking through them as if we're blind to them. We know them for what they are. Our perception is no longer so skewed. You know, they're clouds, and we know they're clouds, and that's okay. When these habits of mind become conscious, it cuts their power enormously. And that's just the power that mindfulness has. In a moment, it's bringing consciousness, awareness, to a veil like this, if that's what's present in that moment. It's a very powerful purifying force, mindfulness. And it needs patience because these tendencies of mind are strong. And it's not a couple of viewings isn't going to uproot them completely, at least for most of us. So it needs a lot of patience. But it's really helpful to know, to reflect on, that each moment of seeing is a moment when that habit isn't operating. It is a moment of weakening the tendency for it to arise in the next moment. In a way, a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom because we're free of these patterns of mind, of greed and hatred and confusion. And that moment might seem, not seem ecstatic or really special, but it's really important. And it's important to notice, again, these moments. Not just noticing the moments we're caught in, in the tendencies, the habits of mind, Notice the moments when we're not 
caught in those, when there's mindfulness, when there's calmness. It's really important. One other thing that sometimes happens, sometimes, most of the time, happens with all of us, as, we be, as the mindfulness gets stronger and we actually do begin to come out of our blind conditioning and we start to see these habits of mind, these filters, is they start to seem so prevalent sometimes that people often say, since I started meditating, I'm just so much worse. I think I'm much more neurotic than I ever was before. And I just so much greed. I'm so aware of grasping. I'm so aware of aversion. I didn't used to be this way. And it's important to notice this. It's another way of kind of drowning in the, in the suffering aspect, of getting lost in the clouds, seeing only the disturbances. Seeing in this way, it's another veil, the thinking that I'm worse that it's getting worse, that I have more greed than I ever used to have, that I'm more neurotic than I ever used to be. It's another skewing of perception, like a real identifying with the negative. I mean, it's happening because what was unseen before is now becoming conscious. Before, we didn't feel like we were filled with greed because we never saw it. Now we're seeing it right, left, and center, and we think if we see it, it should go away. But as I said, it's really strong, so it doesn't just go like that. So we're seeing it. The awareness is really lighting up the causes of suffering. Important, vital step in our becoming free of it. And it can seem overwhelming. It can become a veil to the, our experience because, again, we're identifying with it. We're identifying with, I'm such a greedy person. I'm more neurotic than I used to be. Identifying with seeing all the negative tendencies and not noticing when the others, when they're not present. Thich Nhat Hanh has a great way of talking about this. He says that, yes, to see and understand suffering is absolutely necessary. But we don't need to use it to create unnecessary suffering out of that. And this is what we're doing when we're going, oh my God, look how much greed there is in my mind. We're creating unnecessary suffering in that moment. His example, I love his examples. They're just so simple and down to earth. If you have a really bad toothache, you're really aware of suffering in that moment. There's no denying. You can't get away from it. And when it finally stops, It's so pleasant. It's really almost blissful. And there's a real awareness. Ah, there's no suffering. This is a happy moment. How much of our life do we not have a toothache? You know? (laughs) And how often do we appreciate that? It's like that. It's like that with these other aspects of our mind, too. We focus in on the difficulty. We forget to notice when it isn't present. We forget to think, well, that's just kind of blah. And we really focus in. Actually, not having a toothache is really a nice experience. (laughs) If I pay attention to it, it's not boring. 
It's not neutral. It's really nice. So it's a, this is a way in life as in practice that we isolate the negative, the glaring, the difficult, and discount or ignore what is pleasant or positive or enjoyable. You can do it. I often notice this in myself if I do something that people observe and ten people come up and say, oh, that was really good, Carol. And one person comes up and says, I don't know, you know, and gives me some negative feedback. Who do I believe? (laughs) There's no question. All those ten first people are completely discounted. And the the eleventh is, well, that's, that's an accurate description of what happened. We do this all the time. Out of the flow of our experience of thoughts, of emotions, of sensations, we isolate, we identify one, we kind of pull that one out, give it a lot of energy, and that's the one that fits our filter at the moment, and that's the one that we believe. So if you're in a space today of, I'm so lazy, I'm really greedy, I can't concentrate, I'm just stupid, which thoughts are drawn out? and identified with, the ones that filter that filter, if we're not aware that that filter is just another thought, another feeling. So today, how many thoughts and emotions have come and gone in your experience? How many? You couldn't even begin to think how many thoughts have come and gone. Which ones did you hook on to? Which thoughts and feelings are defining today, now, your perception of today's reality? We all do this, but just to be aware that we're doing this. So today, are you rebellious? Are you spaced out? Are you a basket case yogi? Are you doing really terrific? Are you scared? Which perceptions has the mind hooked onto and made a solid reality out of? And of course, you can do that just as well with the pleasant as with the unpleasant. Once with the pleasant, we're not so aware that we're suffering from it. And we're not so discouraged about practice. And we think it's great when we're doing that little pleasant. And when it's unpleasant, it's when we want to pack it in. So that gives us the motivation to really investigate. So when you become aware that you're holding such a self-definition, boy, I just can't concentrate. I've just been so angry today. When you become aware of that, that's a clue to begin to look very carefully at your moment-by-moment experience. And what one usually finds is experience really isn't nearly as solid as you think it is. I'm so angry. I woke up really grumpy today. Yeah, and I was grumpy for a while, and then I went out and saw that the morning was really beautiful and appreciated that for a while. And then I got kind of spacey and wondered if I should walk or sit, went to breakfast, enjoyed that, but then the person ahead of me was really rude in the way that they served this. Boy, I'm really angry today. And it goes like that. And you'll see that there were various moments, maybe a lot of them, where a lot of anger came up. And also a lot, a lot of other moments where the whole range of other experiences came up from bliss to boredom to mindfulness to concentration to sleepiness. And somehow the definition has been anger because we isolate, identify with, kind of cling to this negative experience. We kind of make a bridge with our thoughts between separate moments and make it one solid umbrella 
to cover the whole day or the whole last three hours. So just to begin to notice this, as we see that moment by moment it's changing, that what we're calling this, I'm so neurotic, I'm so much worse, I'm so filled with greed, isn't so solid as we think. It's coming about because we're seeing more clearly. But as Thich Nhat Hanh says, yeah, we can feel and be with the anger, but also begin to see more clearly the moments of calm, the moments of contentment, the moments of peace, the moments of just neutrality. Really, really important. Realizing that pleasant and neutral objects are equally valid objects of attention as difficult and painful ones. Not more valid. I mean, we've spent a lot of our lives chasing the pleasant. There's a reason we're kind of afraid to fall back into that again. It is important to open to the difficult. But when the difficult isn't present, it's also important to open to what is present, if it happens to be pleasant, if it happens to be neutral. Mindfulness is non-discriminating awareness, totally non-discriminating, the same as the quality of metta. In a way, the quality of soft, connected openness and acceptance that we bring to whatever object is arising in our attention in a moment, in a way that is the quality of metta. Nothing is shut out of it. Nothing is more important than anything else. All equally valid, because in this moment, what's presenting itself is the truth of this moment. It can't be otherwise. So that's our life experience, moment to moment. Anytime we look, it brings the excruciating, it brings the sublime. It's our experience on this earth, our, the experience of nature, experience of our mind and body when we just sit here for an hour. It's peace, real peace, freedom. It's being able to be with all aspects of life, the sublime, the incredibly painful, and everything in between. Appreciate the beauty, open to the suffering through our own experience. And from this can arise great compassion, great compassion for ourselves, for each other, for the earth. Practice is not about attaining or coming to some perfect, unchanging state of bliss, some perfect place that is free from pain. That isn't here on this earth, in these bodies. It's about a process of relating to life, to all of life, to this moment of life, however it presents itself, the painful and the beautiful, with a fresh, open and loving mind. Even incredible suffering can open to equally incredible beauty. I just want to close by reading a quotation from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, 
which to me demonstrates this. He speaks a lot in his books about the, the Gulag Archipelago, the, the labor camps under Stalin. It's, it's three volumes. It goes on and on. Un, things that are unbearable to think about, the way people were treated and the torments and hardships that people went through in these camps. And through it, over and over and over, he recounts cases of people growing incredibly spiritually, of incredible beauty emerging in the human heart through being in an opening to these experiences that would seem from the outside to be completely unbearable. I couldn't think of something that's more unbearably painful and more exquisitely beautiful than than this power of love and spiritual opening and compassion that comes in a human heart that's been through immense suffering. And to me, that's what our practice is about, opening to both. He says, and he himself spent 10 years in these prison camps, so he's talking from what he knows. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts. Inside us, it oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an unuprooted small corner of evil. Since then, I have come to understand the truth of all the religions of the world. They struggle with the evil inside a human being, inside every human being. It might be impossible to expel evil from the world in its entirety, but it is possible to transcend it within each person. So that's what we're doing here. By opening to the beauty and the pain, we can learn to transcend it in our own heart. And in some ways, I think that's one of the strongest gifts we can bring to the world and to each other. Because from that space, we can then manifest in any, as many different ways as there are people. Let's just sit for a few minutes.
So there's about 40 minutes for walking meditation. If the bell ringer would ring the bell at about 5 to 9. So uh, tonight is the the third day of practice for many of you and the 13th day for uh, quite a few others. As is customary at this time in a retreat, at the end of this uh, initial settling in period, um, there's often a talk about difficulties, working with all the sufferings and uh, difficult energies that come in practice. And for those who've been here for a longer time, you'll probably find that even though you went through a a talk on the hindrances early in the last retreat, it will still be relevant unless you've gotten rid of all of them. (laughs) You're just perhaps dealing on a subtler level. But it's the same movements of the mind towards or away from or getting disturbed and confused by uh, certain emotions and moods that take you over and prevent clear seeing. So I want to talk about that tonight and also include in this talk honoring the fact that tomorrow is Earth Day. And that's quite a, quite a thing to reflect on. The planet for one day will jointly and directly acknowledge the fact that it's suffering and that if we can bring some compassion and wisdom to our situation, perhaps we can come to an end of that suffering or at least move in the direction of lessening the suffering. The hindrances, these difficult energies, which you've probably 
heard of before many times. They show us the first noble truth of the teachings that the meditation is based on, that there is suffering. It's true, isn't it? Someone asked Ramakrishna why there's so much suffering and confusion and evil in the world. He said, to thicken the plot. Who knows why there is all of this suffering? It does make things interesting. It's not just boring meditation when your shoulder is screaming out or you've got confusion and heaviness. Something else is there to to be dealt with. The first time I uh, led a retreat, a weekend retreat, I had been teaching for uh, for a while and was encouraged to lead a weekend. One of uh, one of my good friends was taking part in this weekend, and I really wanted to, her to have a positive experience the, the weekend. Well, around Saturday midday. <clears throat> as often happens after the initial glow of excitement of coming into the practice, uh, she was having a terrible time and came to me saying, this is awful. Why are we doing this? I tried to think of how I could help her have a pleasant experience with the meditation. And I... um, I suggested she might take a walk or do a few other things. But I was really, it was weighing on my mind, gee, I'm really putting her through some real terrible stuff and uh, is this right? After about an hour or so of this, I remembered that the first truth of this teaching is there's suffering in life. I said, oh yeah, there's no getting around it. You really have to see that if you're going to understand what this is about. What we do with the suffering by our reactions, our response to the problems that come up will either create more suffering or can lead to wisdom and growth and an opening of the heart. The more we understand these forces, the less we're run by them. The more we understand suffering, the less we're afraid to touch it. So the meditation is taking a direct look at our difficulties, being willing to wake up to them and see them clearly, name them clearly, so that they don't get us from behind, ambushing us, or we don't spend our time trying to run away from them, hoping that sooner or later they'll pass. This is from the power of mindfulness, Nyanapanaka. He says, There is an element of truth in the word magic of primitive man. Things that could be named had lost their secret power over us. The horror of the unknown. That ancient belief in the magical power of knowing the name appears also in many fairy tales and myths where the power of a demon is broken just by facing him courageously and pronouncing his name. To know the name of a force, a being, or an object was to primitive man identical with the mastery over it. And in a way, that's what we're doing here when we bring to light 
these various problems that arise. We name them so that they lose their magical power over us. We see them clearly. There's such a a strong conditioning to turn away in the face of our difficulties to find some way to make ourselves feel better that this is contrary to most of what we've been taught our lives. Get out of the, the unpleasant stuff and go towards something that's a bit more fun or entertaining. If we can open to our suffering, it deepens our compassion and our wisdom. How do we react in our lives, in our lives out in, in the world, when we see something that's, that's quite uh, unsettling, an accident, or a severely disabled person? You notice that clenching up of, ooh, I can't let that in. It's just too painful. Not that that's wrong, it's just important to see that reaction closes us off from our connection to life, to others, and to ourselves, to the suffering in ourselves. Uh, Yesterday, met somebody, quite a remarkable woman. Uh, Carol and I both, uh, both met her. This is continuing saga of the bunnies. The other night, Jack mentioned that there were these baby bunnies Uh, being born. Well, it seems that the mother wasn't around. And uh, there was a litter of four. One of them uh, died, and then we saw a second one die. So uh, one of the, uh, Adrienne and uh, and her partner, uh, uh, Elliot, found uh, an animal rescue unit nearby in Morongo Valley and took one of the other bunnies over. We hadn't discovered the fourth yet um, and met this woman who they talked a bit about and said, she's a pretty interesting person. It sounded really neat. I said, boy, I wish I would have gone. Then it turns out there was a fourth bunny. <laughs> so we had our chance and uh, Carol and I went over and met this woman, Judith Lindley, who runs the animal rescue unit in Morongo Valley. What this is, is some space that they, that they got, which is filled, it's kind of like a junkyard, filled with old uh, beat-up trucks and machines and, um, that aren't working, and really an out-of-the-way, uh, uh, not, not a place that you'd pick for uh, setting up your dream home. Um, Along with all the machines uh, and the the, uh, broken down vehicles were 42 cats, 42 bunnies plus the babies, 12 dogs, 6 chickens, 2 donkeys, a pony with one eye missing, these animals, most of which were disabled, they were taken in because other people didn't want them and uh, some had lost legs, some were uh, blind. Uh, they were, as Mother Teresa would say, the poorest of the poor. And she took them in. Also, she lives with her 75-year-old husband. She's, I'd say, in her 40s. Who He wasn't there, but he's 
this linebacker of a guy, she says, who goes out and finds work and odd jobs and fixes, fixes uh, beat up uh, cars and trucks and is really strong. He's, he looks about 55. Three kids, an 11-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 4-year-old. She has another child, 21, who's living nearby who has a family of, of his own. Plus passers, people who are passing through who she takes in. And there were about three or four old people who uh, didn't have a home. She hauls in 50 gallons of water each day. There's not water on the property, uh, but it takes about 50 gallons to feed all the, the pets and the, for their needs. She's supported just through donations plus the odd jobs that her husband finds. She's a very happy person. Incredible. She said, oh, come look at the cats and here's Jasper. Come on out, Jasper. And here's Justin. And, here's... and she's been doing this for, for quite a few years. And she just is, is like this bodhisattva living out in the desert. How she responds to the suffering around her, it was very inspiring to me, with joy. That possibility is perhaps in, in each of us. Getting back to our practice, what sufferings have you been working with today? What difficulties have you been encountering? And how have you been meeting them? How have you been relating to them, wishing they change? Somewhat of an opening, a willingness to learn from them? In practice, there are five classical hindrances, difficult energies, that color our experience, keep us from seeing clearly when we don't recognize them. That's why they're called hindrances. They hinder clear seeing. But if we can start to wake up to them with understanding and wisdom and kindness, they don't have to be difficulties or hindrances they're the richness of, of our practice. They're what one teacher called manure for enlightenment. So I'll go through them uh, briefly in relating to our practice and then talk a bit more in a global scale these hindrances at work and how we can work with them. The first is the difficult energy of attachment, wanting in the mind, wanting things to be more fun or different than the way they are, wanting the next bit of entertainment. It runs the gamut from a mild um, fantasy to a deep obsession, whether it's lust or uh, greed or... Whatever it is, your mind can find anything to latch onto when there's this feeling of incompleteness. What the problem is with this wanting mind is it keeps us looking outside of ourselves for completion. Somehow this moment isn't enough. And so if I had something out there, then that would satisfy me. Whatever it is that you can find or that you think will satisfy you, it won't do it. 
Has anything done it so far? Has any gourmet meal or great sexual experience or thing like a new car or a new house or has anything done it to the point where you say, I don't need anything else? Probably not. Because when you get it, then it starts to grow old and it doesn't have that same attraction and novelty. The energy of wanting keeps us looking for things and it can be any kind of strange thing. This is um, from Ajahn Sumedho. I've been reading a bit from this retreat. He says, You'd be surprised at some of the forms that greed takes for monks. As a layman, you can spend time trying to seek out suitable objects. You can form material possessions. But because monks live a celibate life and have very few possessions, we find our greed accumulates over things like robes or alms bowls. I became obsessed with robes for the first few months. The color of the robe, believe it or not, At the monastery where I lived before, they wore robes of a bright, knock-your-eyes-out kind of orange, and it just wasn't my color. (laughs) When I went to Wat Papang, they wore a kind of ochre yellow or brownish-colored robe, and so I developed a great desire for this kind. First, they wouldn't give me one. (laughs) I had to wear one of those knock your eyes out orange robes and I became very greedy to get new robes, big robes. The robes in Thailand never fitted me properly and at Wat Papang they made them to your size. You'd have tailor-made robes. Finally, after a month or so, Ajahn Chah suggested that a monk make me these robes but then I became obsessed by the color. I did not want it too brown and I did not want it very much red. I went through a lot of sorrow and despair trying to get the right color for the robe. (laughs) A new robe, a new piece of clothes, a sweet meditation, then everything will be okay. You think you'll get one that'll last, huh? No way. Second hindrance is the opposite of grasping, of wanting, aversion, not liking, annoyance, irritation, aggression, rage. The whole gamut, the mind that pushes away from things. Again, it keeps us from seeing clearly because we're contracted in that state and there's a great turbulence in our our beings. Have you noticed it? What have you gotten annoyed at or irritated by? How it keeps us from being here in the moment. In some ways, it's not quite as seductive as the desire, the wanting, because it's painful after a while. But it is so painful. Sometimes we don't even want to let go of it just because we don't know there's another way. We're so familiar with that reaction of, this is not fair. 
the Buddha talked of it as holding on to a hot burning coal and not realizing that you can let it go. Third energy, or I should say lack of energy, difficult energy, is that of sluggishness, laziness, dullness of mind, sloth and torpor, as it's called classically. It's very hard these first few days, especially, because we don't operate on our own energy when we first get here. It takes time. And from being in a very busy life, you start to nod out when you don't get that extra stimulation. Or when what you're looking at is pain in the mind or pain in the body, it's not so much fun. And so we can have a a tendency to check out. I don't think I want to see that. Not necessarily consciously, but just the mind has a way of blanking out when things aren't so delightful. As you have noticed, it can be very frustrating and also keep you from putting any, any commitment into your practice. Well, maybe I'll just take a nap. Sometimes that can be appropriate if you feel quite depleted or exhausted. But often, if you just reinforce leaving when you're getting sluggish or you're not so clear, you won't be willing to stay with things when they're not bright and alert. So that sluggishness, that laziness or dullness of mind, it's difficult to work with. The fourth energy, restlessness, which includes agitation, nervousness, worry, anxiety, guilt, if you're replaying old memories again and again, it creates a kind of skittishness that keeps us from being here with presence in the moment. It can be very superficial, that scatteredness of one thought to the next, jumping around, often about the future or about the past. Sometimes the energy when we first come to a retreat is is still jiggling around from the busyness of our lives. And we sit down and our outsides can look very still, but inside we're still just jumping around. It takes a little while for it to settle. Then the fifth energy, which is the doubting mind. I can't do this. This is too hard. I don't know if this practice really works. I don't know if the teachings are the real way. Again, it's very heavy. It keeps us from having the the confidence to put forth the effort. The way that we can work with these energies is to open up and experience them fully as we will start to do formally in the instructions uh, tomorrow, we can incorporate the qualities of wanting, of aversion, of 
worry and restlessness of the doubting mind, even of dullness of mind, as objects of meditation. And the key is being willing to acknowledge that they're here, not trying to set some comfortable place up so that we don't have to touch them. And each time we can touch them that way, we're not quite as afraid of them. And we see other possibilities of working. This is a learning process, one moment at a time, one encounter at a time. A passage that I, I often read about this learning process, autobiography in five short chapters by Portia Nelson. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five. I walk down another street. It takes time. And what we're doing here is, little by little, living more in chapter three, where we fall in from old habits and we wake up and we say, oh, I do have a choice. Not that I need to blame myself for falling in, but I have some options, whether or not to stay in here and feel that life is unfair or feel totally overwhelmed or to wake up and say, oh, this is just the confused mind. This is just the doubting mind. This is just the angry mind. Wake up to it. Understand it with care, with, with compassion. And then, as soon as that understanding comes, not be caught by it. There are ways you can work with each of these energies besides the the basic mindfulness, but that's the key. Feeling it inside fully. How does wanting feel? Is there a tightness? Is there a clenching? Is there a, um, a disturbance that contracts? How does hatred and anger or annoyance feel? Get to know it well. It's an old companion. And it's not just in your mind. You've got a lot of company. That's why these are classical hindrances. It's part of being human. When we can go from the level of my problem to the commonality that we share in working with these difficulties, then we don't have to take it so personally. It's okay. It's just a mood coming to 
test us, teach us. We practice not just for easing our own pain, because we're not separate from the rest of life. You know how easily you're influenced by someone around you. Well, we all influence all aspects, the people around us, the beings around us, by our actions. And our responses have effects on the whole of life. And the meditation starts to awaken us to the fact that we are not separate. We can't divorce ourselves from life. We can't come to a retreat and say, okay, well, I hope the rest of the world gets it together, but I've got my own problems. You can do that for a little time, and this is a training period, but if we go with that attitude, then we cut ourselves off from opening in a much deeper way to what love is about, the love that is not separating the love that has the barriers lifted between us and all beings. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh, Being Peace. He says, How do you expect to leave everything behind when you enter a meditation center? The kind of suffering that you carry in your heart, that is society itself. You bring that with you. You bring society with you. You bring all of us with you. When you meditate, it is not just for yourself. You do it for the whole society. You seek solutions to your problems, not only for yourself, but for all of us. It's a wonderful way to practice. And when you see that, then you see that the suffering inside of you is not so different than the problems and the suffering that we're all dealing with. If you're a mountain climber or someone who enjoys the countryside or the green forest, you know that the forests are our lungs outside of our bodies. Yet we have been acting in a way that has allowed two million square miles of forest land to be destroyed by acid rain. We're imprisoned in our small selves, thinking only of the comfortable conditions for this small self while we destroy our large self. One day I suddenly saw that the sun is my heart, my heart outside of this body. If my body's heart ceases to function, I cannot survive. But if the sun, my other heart, ceases to function, I also immediately die. We should be able to be our true self. That means we should be able to be the rivers. We should be able to be the forest. We should be able to be a Soviet citizen. When we, we must do this to understand and to have hope for the future. That is, not, that is the non-dualistic way of seeing. We're one organism, this planet, you know, the Gaia principle. Actually, there's a beautiful book that's just come out called Dharma Gaia, uh, Buddhist perspectives on ecology. 
And in a way, if we think of the planet as one organism, then humanity is kind of the consciousness of that organism, the thinking mind. We are the, the, the way that the planet knows itself. As um, Brian Swim says, it is self-reflexive awareness that allows the planet to know itself. And that self-reflexive awareness that we have, we can understand that we are alive. That's something quite special when we think of all the different kinds of beings there are on the planet. Perhaps a few of them have that capacity. It seems like a lot of them don't. And as within us, there can be destruction, forces of destruction or the possibility of awakening, that larger mind or humanity as a whole can be involved in forces of more destruction or we can awaken. Like our own predicament where we often need suffering to wake us up, this is what the planet is going through. It's unfortunate, it seems, that it has to be that way. But often, it's the suffering that brings the sense of urgency that sees that we'd better wake up or else we're all going to be in a lot of trouble. The Buddha said, suffering, the first noble truth, is what wakes most people up to look for an end to it, if we can process it wisely. So, again, as with our own hindrances, the way to wake up is to see how our global hindrances are causing suffering. Those same forces, desire, aversion, laziness, restlessness, doubt, they have their roots in our minds. This is from Staying Alive, which is a book written by one of the meditators here on this retreat. And a very powerful exploration, The Psychology of Human Survival is the subtitle. He says, It's no secret that we've reached a critical time in our history, a time that may decide the fate of both our species and our planet. It is a time of paradox. The evidence of human genius and inspiration is all around us, but so too is the evidence of ignorance and idiocy. On the one hand, we possess scientific, medical, and psychological resources undreamed of only decades ago. We've gone to the moon, fathomed the intricacies of the brain, and sent probes to the farthest reaches of our solar system. On the other hand, millions of people starve, Our ecosystem is endangered and the nuclear arms threaten global suicide. In short, we possess unprecedented opportunities yet also face unprecedented threats. Moreover, for the first time in millions of years of evolution, all the major threats to our survival are human caused. 
problems such as nuclear weapons, pollution, and ecological imbalance stem directly from our own behavior and can therefore be traced to psychological origins. That means that the current threats to human survival and well-being are actually symptoms, symptoms of our own individual and shared mindset. The state of the world is therefore a creation and expression of our own minds, and it is to our minds that we must look for solutions. Looking at how these forces, these hindrances work, greed, it's not hard to to see that that's probably the main problem because it leads to a lack of respect, just a cutting off of sensitivity to the larger well-being, whether it's the rainforest being cut down or fuel consumption or using up uh, fuel that has wastes that we don't want to take a look at. Oh, no problem. We'll just find a place that we can ship them off to. That's a lack of acknowledgement of the fact that we're all sharing this house together. Aversion, which also takes the form of aggression. In our relationship to the planet, we've often had a, a man versus nature stance. We will conquer nature. That's kind of silly when you think about it. We're part of nature. Why would we want to conquer it? Just the same way that that aggression leads to the development of all the weapons that deplete our resources and threaten us. Sloth and torpor, the lazy mind. We know the answers. And even might have a sense of urgency, but we often don't act accordingly. Well, someone else will do it. Or we pretend that it's not really a problem. We probably all can get in touch with the ways that we're lazy about waking up to the problem and doing our share. Restlessness, worry and fear that immobilize us or guilt over our past actions, or blame. It's their fault. No, it's their fault. Not my fault. That worry or fear can really keep us from acting because we kind of give up. Oh, forget it. And you can just be paralyzed in it. That also is closely connected with the doubting mind. Doubting that anything can be done. Forget it. It's too late. We're just on a down, downward roll. And just as within ourselves, the awareness practice needs to be turned to these difficult energies in a more global perspective. The Tibetans talk about transmuting the energies, our neurotic energies into sane or enlightened energies, taking the basic energy that's here and by applying awareness, wisdom, 
compassion and a real intention to change that we can allow the change to occur and we can contribute in a very meaningful way. And when we look at each of these energies, attachment, the wanting, and so forth, we can see that when we bring understanding, the understanding of the suffering that it causes, there can be the same expression, that energy being transmuted into generosity, for instance, with the wanting mind, seeing that as we take more for ourselves, there's none for anybody, including ourselves. We start to wake up and see, wow, we'd better share this wisely, or there won't be any for, for me either. The aversion, the anger, the hatred, the sense of separation. Little by little, we can actually see it over the last few years, miraculously, starting to give way to a new way of relating, perhaps with a bit more concern and sensitivity for others, perhaps with a a bit more compassion and loving kindness and seeing that we better do something quick, otherwise we might not have another chance. Laziness, when we really look carefully at the choices and we're willing to touch the suffering that that laziness causes, it can give rise to commitment, to perseverance. The restless mind that's just immobilized by fear The antidote to restlessness is focus, concentrating that energy, channeling it in meaningful, purposeful activities. The doubting mind, the antidote is faith. And it seems simple to to, to see that if we keep on giving up hope, that there is no hope. If we throw in the towel before uh, we try, then no possibilities. That's why it seems to me so important to, whatever way we can, be inspired and let our faith grow. Because that enables not only us to hold the vision but to share it with others so that they can let it awaken that faith in them and it can in turn affect all others. It's contagious, that kind of faith. Well, Earth Day tomorrow is a bit like a one-day retreat where we hold the vision, a kind of world retreat that lets us all stop and take stop and take stock, acknowledge really what our situation is and to commit, to focus, to align our purpose. It's interesting looking at Time Magazine this week's time. They've got a, a big spread on it, quite a big spread. All these activities going on. 
<clears throat> say that um, see it. in one recent poll, some 80% of Americans said that they would support more strenuous environmental efforts regardless of the cost. And just to, to get a sense of some of the activities, a Bangkok bash, Thailand's top rock band, headlines the We Love the Forest concert. Yeah. Tokyo happening, visitors to the Earth Day Festival at Yume no Shima, Dream Island, a park built on what was once a trash dump, can take in a concert or play, watch milk cartons being turned into postcards and cooking oil into soap, or tour two nearby garbage processing centers. The Kenya Countdown, Evangelical Fellowship of Kenya will launch its campaign to plant 1.5 million trees with the help of churches and schools. Peak performance, to demonstrate that the environment is a common cause, 15 U.S., Soviet, and Chinese climbers hope to reach the, ma- the top of Mount Everest on Earth Day. Those who get there will place the satellite will place satellite calls to heads of state, then pick up garbage and gear dumped by previous expeditions. <laughs> In Rome, pollution protest. Rome's nature lovers plan to put their bodies on the line when they stage a sit-down, maybe even a lie-down, along one of the Italian capital's traffic-choked central thoroughfares. Survivors can attend a concert in a nearby piazza. (laughs) And just lots of TV shows, and it's quite far out. Now, of course, as many of these global events sometimes can bring up this sense of skepticism, A one-day retreat is not enough, as you probably have seen in your own practice. It's just the start. This is a commentary on on Earth Day saying, instead of making hard choices, it's easier to blow off steam. April 22nd will offer people an opportunity to purge accumulated anxiety over wounds to Earth's life support systems. Worn out by weeks of buildup and an accompanying media blitz, Many people will return to business as usual on Monday, hoping not to hear the E word again for weeks. And so that's the challenge to the globe and the challenge to us. Not just one encounter. Oh, yeah, I saw it. Okay, enough. But each time you see it, being willing to open up to it. Just like seeing here on a retreat, each encounter is a new opportunity that we can have to wake up. So as we practice, we can practice with the understanding that we affect and we're affected by all of life around us. We're not separate. We can see the impact that each of us has on the global community. We can acknowledge how deeply the roots of confusion are, both within us and within the collective humanity. And we can see as we practice here, 
just doing our sitting and walking, our moments of mindfulness, each little moment of mindfulness as we deal with these challenges in practice. Our efforts that we bring here to bring wisdom and compassion and purify ourselves for our own peace, our own inner peace, they're a contribution. They're a gift that we give to the planet. And so let's not underestimate each moment of mindfulness. Let's be willing to open up to all the pain and the suffering because that is what leads us to the end of suffering. we can uh, take a few moments for some questions or discussion. the last part. Well, this retreat uh, was set up as a retreat for people who've done 10-day uh, retreats before. And so that's where, what we really want to, um, to honor. And part of deepening of practice is extending sittings at times, but you can go at your own rhythm. You know, you don't have to stay in the hall or feel that you've got to be um, in a prison when you feel that you've had enough and you're losing your, your perspective and balance, then you can leave the hall. Uh, that's at the end of the hour of the hour and 15 minute sitting. Yeah, she was suggesting ringing it at the end of 45 minutes for an hour sitting. Yeah. Can you talk a little about the balance between um, needing to do things about the unacceptable, the things that are unacceptable about the state of the world, and accepting it? Sort of that. Hmm. How do the the question, the balance between. <clears throat> needing to do things that are unacceptable about the state of the world and needing to accept it. Is that it? Needing to do things about the unacceptable. Yeah, needing to do things about the unacceptable. What did I, what did I say? <laughs> right. Oh, okay. No, we don't want to do things that are unacceptable. A little bit little. Do things about the unacceptable and also being able to accept it. 
Well, it's, it's kind of the same in our own process. Um, when there, there are things inside of you that, that need to be changed or that are important to, to bring another way to, the first piece is to accept that that's there with some understanding, with some openness and compassion. But that doesn't mean sitting back and just letting them go on. It means bringing a, a commitment to wake up to those things. Seems the same way with, with global problems, to me anyway. That first there needs to be acknowledgement, where are the roots of these problems? Can I open up to see the fear and the greed and those things? And not so much blame the perpetrators of those things, including myself, um, but do what I can in my, in my way without polarizing, without making somebody evil, but just seeing that the, the real villain is ignorance. The real villain is not seen clearly. And so you do what you do with commitment and without attachment for, for fixing it up fast. But you just do your part, just like each time, each encounter with the angry mind is that one drop in the bucket, as the Buddha says. Drop by drop, we do our part. If we get too attached with fixing it up and rescuing it, out of a sense of fear, then it's a very exhausting and um, a frightening kind of task if we can bring a sense of caring and compassion and, and steadfastness, um, then there's a possibility of a bit more effective action that can inspire others. Sounds like a, a nice reminder. Okay. So no paper napkins tomorrow. Mm-hmm. If when you're walking on the desert, you see things that were contributed by uh, human container uh, disposal and so forth, um, you might pick them up. So recycled napkins, can you recycle them again? it for a few moments. Mm-hmm.
Uh, one announcement before we do the walking, and that is uh, just a reminder about the precepts that we all took as we started the retreat of non-harming, non-stealing, being in our own process, not communicating with others sexually, physically, verbally, honoring the silence and intoxicants, refraining from intoxicants. Um, Please, let's make this a retreat where we bring our commitment to the practice and give it as a, a gift to everyone practicing together. So there's, I'd say, about uh, 30 minutes for walking. And uh, if you'd ring the bell, just just about 5 to, and we'll have another sitting uh, at 9 o'clock. And then um, there'll be a late-night sitting tonight as well with uh, a reading. Thank you. And tomorrow morning, the schedule is the same as usual up till 9. We'll post the the new schedule and we'll re-announce it at the sitting between 8 and 9 tomorrow morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.